1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. And it's headed, uh, be holy. The headings aren't part of the original scriptures, but it's, they're useful. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the, on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed as his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, and actually it's written many times if you look it up in a concordance, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so, your faith and hope are in God. Well, if you could have your Bibles open to that passage, we're going to look at it now. I don't know whether you've ever asked yourself the question, what is real? What is reality? It's a question that uh, people have been asking for thousands of years. Descartes, in, in uh, the 19th century, argued that because he was able to think, he was real. He coined it in the phrase, I think, therefore, I am. Uh, in the 90s, <clears throat> the, the debate was, was further um, 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 mystified by the Matrix trilogy, uh, who's, who's seen The Matrix here? Oh, well done. Good. A very, a, a very well-educated audience. Um, <clears throat> the, in The Matrix film, the question was posed, what is reality? Is it just a computer-generated program um, where, where it helps you dream uh, this real world and the real world is actually outside of uh, that dream um, uh, created by computers? And The uh, uh, Matrix was a question of whether you were in the matrix, the dream, or the real world, which was outside the dream, but even those outside the dream were controlled by computers. What was real? More recently, Barry Allen, as The Flash, challenges what reality is with his time-traveling uh, exploits, his ability to create multiple universes and, and ultimate realities. What is reality, therefore? That's what Barry Allen asks, and in his you know, usual teenage angst, oh, you know, he, slight, he slightly sounds a little bit constipated as he, as he worries about the, the ultimate realities that he's created and what will happen as a consequence. Run with me. It's another step on that question of what is real. And whereas these are sort of fantasy, uh, fantasy questions with the Matrix and the Flash... Actually, Peter is addressing a very real question. What is real? Because as a Christian, there are two worldviews, aren't there? There's a secular worldview, and there's a Christian worldview. 
A secular worldview that says, do anything you like as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. That is our secular worldview. That sentence, that statement, summarizes how our secular worldview operates. That's one reality. But then there's the other reality. As a Christian, you have another reality that says, actually, we have a God who has come into this world and his existence and his and understanding who he is shapes how we think, how we behave, how we operate. And the question has got to be, which reality is true? Which reality am I going to live in? If I go to school and I am mocked because I believe in a God who actually came into time and history, is that mocking something that is based on a real reality? Or is that mocking a complete, you do not understand what you're doing? When I come into church, is this real reality? Is this worldview shaped by the person of Jesus Christ reality? Do you know, the reason why this question crops up time and time again, and we're caught in these two worldviews, is because Christians are called to be different. It was the same back in Peter's day, and it's the same today. Back in Peter's day, they were encouraged to, to follow powerful gods like Zeus, who could throw thunderbolts in a blink of an eye. The god of war, Mars, the licentious goddess, Diana. And they followed a god who was a crucified Jew. The, the Christians that Peter was writing to was follow, were saying, the Christians that Peter was writing to were saying that their God died the death of a criminal. He wasn't even a Roman criminal. He was lesser than a Roman citizen. He was a Jew. And he suffered the most, most undignified death. He was nothing. He was absolutely nobody. And that's what, that's who they were saying was their God. And because of this crucified Jew, it meant that they couldn't accept bribes in a culture that said accept bribes because that's the way the wheels of commerce turn. They, they didn't frequent temple prostitutes because their God, their crucified Jew, says no. They didn't exploit the poor where the poor were there to be exploited because their crucified Jew said no and his reality was true. And so for many of them, they had this, this clash of worldviews, clash of realities. What is real? What is real? The Roman culture or the new Christian world they'd entered into? And that's why Peter writes this book. He wanted his readers to see and know the power of Christ in them. That's why he starts off with that amazing phrase, praise be to God. And, and, he's, and he, he then bangs out in verses 3 to 12, bangs out why Jesus is to be praised, why God is to be praised because of all that he has done through the person of Jesus Christ in history, in physical reality. Because Jesus has come, this 
reality is real. Because Jesus has come, he is to be praised. Because Jesus has come, God has been revealed. That is the truth and the reality that we are now living in. And he wants them to buzz with that reality. He wants them to feel that reality. He wants them to be utterly consumed by the new reality that God has brought into their lives by revealing himself through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why he goes on in this passage and starts with a therefore. Because if this reality is true, if this crucified Jew is not just a Staurost nobody, Staurost means cross, it was an insult by the way, a Staurost nobody, if he was really God, then it means there is a therefore. It means there is a, that you have to, you have to do something about this. There is an absolute response. That's why in verse 13 he starts, look at verse 13 with me, and it's that big word, therefore, therefore, if this Stauros Jew is the absolute reality, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Therefore, be self-controlled. Therefore, set your hope on the grace to be given with you when Jesus Christ is revealed. His starting point is to tell them to fix their, their hope on Jesus. And that's the fundamental take-home command of this passage. If there's one thing we are to take home this evening, it's simply this, to fix our hope on the grace to be given us when Jesus Christ is revealed. What does that mean? It means, press control, alt, delete, if you're a, if you're a, 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 what you call it, Microsoft user. Wipe the hard drive. Just completely delete everything that you have been told and taught. The worldview that keeps pummeling you at school, at work, in, 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 even, even over, the, over the, 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 the garden fence. Press control, out, delete. Get it all wiped out and start with this. Jesus is coming. That is reality. That is the ultimate, absolute truth in this universe. Jesus is coming. It is as historical as the rugby match was yesterday. I had to get something about Welsh rugby in somewhere. And, and just as yesterday's rugby match was a historical event, because rub, well, Wales w was never going to really win, and they suddenly somehow managed to, that's, that's a historical event. The historical event is in the future. That's what it is to set your hope. To set your hope. To, to imagine there is an actual future date in our diaries where Jesus is physically, really, in time and place and energy. He will return to this world. That is what it means to hope. A, to have a certainty, a, a real, complete conviction that Jesus is coming. Why? Because by doing so, it grounds us. By doing so, we are secure. By doing so, we are embedded in the heart of God. And notice Peter says, do that proactively. Prepare your minds. In other words, fill this mind that we have here and now with the absolute certainty, with the conviction, with the truth that Jesus is coming. Let that truth reign in your mind. 
and proactively be self-controlled. Jesus is coming. Let that shape what we buy, how much alcohol we drink, how much food we eat, how much money we spend on clothes, how much time we waste on social media and gaming, how much we invest in the gospel, how much we care for others in mission and social action. The list is endless, but our self-control is to be shaped by the hope that we have when Jesus Christ returns. And that is the overarching command of this passage. And Peter understands, well, there's therefore a lingering question, isn't there? You, you, you can have that statement, but what does it look like in, pass, in practice? And so he gives them three things. And the first is to be holy. The first is to be holy. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written... Be holy because I am holy. What does it mean to be holy? Well, it's to live in a way that reflects God's character. To have that certainty of Jesus' coming shape the way we live. That might seem like an impossible task and an uncompromising command, but for it to be realistic, we have to remember what God calls us out of. You see, before we were Christians, we were totally and utterly ignorant of God. Utterly ignorant of God. Oh, yes, we prayed, but we never prayed to God. Before we were Christians, our prayers were never shaped by an understanding of God, so how could we pray to him? When you hear about people praying and they don't know the God to whom they're praying, it's a nonsense. When we're caught in a discussion, a debate, in, in school, in, in work, with, with friends or, or with family, about God, understand this. Those to whom we are talking do not know God. They have no comprehension of his love or his majesty or his glory or his right to be our God. They are absolutely dead to him. That is what we've been called out of. But now we know him. It means that we, just, we don't just know about God, but we know God. We, we are intimately in communion with him. So we've been brought out of ignorance into communion, into an intimacy that is far and above anything we will ever understand or comprehend. And therefore, the evil desires in our heart that that fight against him are reversed. So rather than not wanting to think about him, we want to know him. We want to think about him. Rather than not wanting to know what pleases him, we want to know what, what pleases him. Rather than not wanting to follow him, we want to follow him. And we have to remember that Christians, when we become Christians, suddenly we are given that ability by God the Holy Spirit. This is not a religious tick list. This is not a, a sense of uh, be holy and, and, and that will get you into heaven. No, this is a be holy because we know God. So just like when our children were little, we found them, when my boys were little, I found them that they were, they were really chuffed to be able to do anything with me. 
So if I went out with a, with a spade in the garden, um, they, would, they would haul out their little spades and, and start making a mess of the lawn. They would, they would walk around the house in my shoes. They would drink from my favorite mug. They, do, they did all these things because they watched me do them. And they wanted to be like me. Doesn't happen anymore. But the point is still there. Why? Because they love me. So this command, be holy, is not a big stick. It's a simple, guys, copy me because you love me and you want to be like me. How do we do that practically? Take the Ten Commandments. And young people, can I encourage you, go to Exodus chapter 20, take the commandments, take the Ten Commandments and read them through. Not as a big stick, but as an invitation. Because you love me, follow me. Those things become our pleasure. But the second way we're to fix our hope on this grace is to live in reverent fear, to live in reverent fear. Look at verse 17. Since you call on a father who, is ju- who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know, it was with, for you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. You see, the assumption here is that the readers have a new life and they're living it differently to the old one they lived. But along with their new life, Peter wants his readers to recognize that God is also their judge and therefore their work will come under his scrutiny. And I know we don't often talk about God's judgment in our culture. It's not popular, particularly in Christian culture at the moment. But it's a privilege that goes along with knowing God intimately. And that's why he says, have reverent fear. It's a sense of saying, yes, we know God. Yes, we understand who he is. Yes, we have an intimate fellowship with him because he has saved us and revealed himself to us. But because of who he is, God the Almighty, then our response to him cannot just be flippancy. There must be this sense of respect, of deep respect, of of respect out of love. That's what reverent fear is. And where does that leave us? Well, do you know, just like the rules of a household are clear, you know, we say in, in, in our homes, you know, clear your plates after the meal, put your washing in the basket, not on the floor. And just as our children obey them because of our relationship, well, so too, because we have a relationship with God, well, then ours is the privilege and the reverent fear of obeying his rules, of living out his way. So we take those Ten Commandments and we say, I, I want to follow them because they are, God's, they, they, are, they are God's instructions to me out of his love, but they're also his invitation to me to please him and to follow him and to listen to him and obey him, to live in reverent fear. And you know, we will fail. We, we will. That's because we're still sinners. But you know, the joy of knowing God is that when we fail, 
When we take those Ten Commandments, we break all ten of them, either in word or thought or deed. Actually, we can go to him and say, Lord God, I have failed you. Please forgive me. That's what it is to live in reverent fear, not to be flippant about sin, but to know that the God against whom we do sin loves us and knows us and will forgive us if we seek his forgiveness. But the last thing that, he, that, that Peter says is, is to live in grateful thanks. Look at verse 18 with me and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or God that you, uh, gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Peter tells us how Christ bought Christians out of their former way of life. Once they were slaves to their sinful desires, once they were slaves to sin, once they were slaves to the way of life, and they were under God's judgment. But because Jesus has come, he's, pray, he's paid the price for their freedom. He's brought them out of slavery. And the price wasn't silver or gold, but his own blood. And the reality of that purchase, guys, the reality of that purchase tells us that God has paid the ultimate price to take away our sin. Jesus' blood is not silver or God, gold. Jesus' blood is not silver or gold, gold, tatty things that, that are meaningless. Jesus' blood is the most precious thing on the universe. And he has paid with his blood the price for our sin. And he has bought us out of slavery to sin. That's what redeemed means. To buy out of slavery. Jesus has bought us out of slavery to sin. That worldview that is ignorant of God. And into a relationship with God. And that is why he says, set your hope on the grace to come when Jesus is revealed. We're to live our lives in grateful thanks and reverent fear and holiness. Why is that so needed? Because in our uncertain world, in our world where there are so many worldviews being thrown at us, there is an anchor for our souls, isn't there? A, a place of concrete certainty. Jesus is coming. You know, this idea of living out grateful thanks and living out a hope in Jesus' reality reminds me of, of one of my favorite characters in the Narnia Chronicles. Reepicheep, I think I've got to pronounce it right, Reepicheep the mouse kind of appears in the third Narnia book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And for a character who's only a mouse, okay, he's a big mouse, but he's a mouse. He's got an enormous heart, an amazing perspective on life. You see, Reepicheep the mouse lives totally to see Aslan's country. Aslan is the Jesus figure of the books. So for the entirety of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he doesn't let his size limit his ability 
He challenges his enemies because they are Aslan's enemies. And he fights for his friends because they are Aslan's people. And he has great courage because he is certain of who Aslan is and of Aslan's return. He dreams of glorious battles and right in the middle of the book is the one character who take <clears throat> sorry and right in the middle of the book he is the one character who takes care of the cantankerous boy Eustace when he falls into difficulty why because Eustace has been bought and has come out of ignorance of Aslan and therefore is now Repicheep's friend because he is Aslan's friend And whereas Prince Caspian sets out on the dawn treader to find his seven missing courtiers, Reepicheep's goal is to find Aslan's country. His hope was that he might one day meet Aslan himself and see Aslan with his own eyes. He's the character in the book that lives out a heart that is transfixed on a certainty to come. And as you read the book, what you find is that that perspective shapes his whole being. The reason for his valor is because he's a child of Aslan. The reason for his pity and kindness to the disliked character Eustace is because he's a child of Aslan. It's his behavior and perspective that gives the rest of the crew hope and certainty in times of difficulty. And his great quote right throughout the book is simply this. We have nothing if we have not hope. We have nothing if we have not hope. In other words, so certain was he of one day seeing Aslan's country that it defined him. It shaped him. It shaped him in the present and gave him purpose and direction for the future. And C.S. Lewis writes him into the books to challenge us. And he is a challenge, isn't he? The question we have to ask is, do we have that same heart, that same, that same certainty, that fixing our hearts on the future date when Jesus will return? <coughs> and saying that is a reality that far outshines the worldviews that I am tempted to face and tempted to join in when I'm at school or I'm in the workplace. Will we be shaped by the anticipation of grace to come. Well, I hope that Peter's challenge here to fix our hope on that grace to come becomes our reality. So as we look at our lives, as we see where our our, our cultural, our secular worldview has shaped our thinking, has shaped our longing, has shaped our desires, and shaped our thinking. Well, may we press that reset button, control, alt, delete of our hearts, and begin again to set our hearts on the grace to come when Jesus Christ is revealed. May our home lives, may our work lives, may our church lives be shaped by that one great truth. Well, we've slightly run out of time uh, for, for questions. Um, what I'd like to do is just spend a couple minutes personally reflecting 
And what does it mean for us tomorrow? What does it mean for us tomorrow? What are we facing tomorrow? Where this hope of the grace to come and that worldview, the certainty of Jesus coming, will be challenged. Where we will be tempted to lose sight of that hope in the face of temptations, in the face of conflicting worldviews. Let's bow our heads. Let's spend a couple minutes.